And of course, when you have to prepare for a sermon and a message, you, you wrestle with it uh, for um, weeks, if not months. Um, wasn't months, but well, weeks, and I had the privilege of doing that. But the reason it's been fascinating for me is that it is, um, it's James, the half-brother of Jesus, in the direction of my life. One of the things uh, that happened to me right after salvation, I discovered for the first time that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And that blew my mind because I went to Catholic school for 11 years, 11 of 12 years. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, how do you go and have Christian education for 11 years and not learn that Jesus had brothers and sisters? This floored me. And it brought me to a place where I was like, if I didn't know that, what else don't I know? And so how it changed the direction of my life was, I, I reasoned within my, in my mind, I said, if I don't know that, what else don't I know? And so I enrolled in Bible college specifically because of that and began a seven-year journey of learning what the Bible actually says. And so when I began that journey, I didn't, I didn't have this vision that, Tim, you're going to be a pastor and a Bible teacher and all these things. It was simply that I didn't know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And I said to myself, I can't follow somebody I don't know. And so that's why I enrolled in Bible college. It was a seven-year journey, and you're probably thinking you were on a slow road. Where, you know, uh, I was just taking a couple courses at, at a time. And uh, seven years later, I ended up with a bachelor's degree, and God opened up a door for me to go and be a Bible teacher in a, in a high, Christian high school and a lot of other, other things that I had absolutely no idea the Lord was going to do from that moment when I discovered that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And of course, where that uh, talks about that, and talks about it in a few spots in Scripture, but in Mark 6, 3, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, in Nazareth, for the second time. Um, and he had already been rejected once. And the people who were listening to Jesus said this, isn't this the carpenter? You know, and it was in that type of tone. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simeon? And aren't his sisters here with us? That was the verse, you know? And so... When you think about that, so Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now, obviously, Jesus is the older brother, and then the other ones came afterwards. So can you imagine the family dynamics? Jesus is your brother. Now, there's a couple things here. Jesus was perfect. Can you imagine having a sibling that's perfect and the tension that that might create within the family? Another piece of that is this. Joseph and Mary knew who Jesus was. They knew he was the Messiah. He was the son of God. He was born of a virgin. You know, they, they knew all this stuff. But then they started having other kids. Now, can you imagine the discussion that was going on between Joseph and Mary? It's like, do we, do we tell them? You know, what, what 
what should we do? And for me, the evidence would show that they didn't tell the brothers and sisters. And I base it on this, okay? Is one, they thought he was crazy and they didn't believe him. And so they either didn't believe the parents or they weren't told. I kind of lean towards that. But here's uh, where the word of God uh, talks about that, that they thought he was crazy. In Mark chapter three, verse 21. Now, Jesus had just returned from Jerusalem and just started having conflict with the Jewish leaders. He also just appointed the 12 uh, apostles. And it's, about, it's after the uh, Passover, and so it's probably the second uh, year of his ministry. And it says, when his family heard about this, and the about this thing is probably the crowds and the conflicts, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. And then, in John chapter 7, verse uh, 2 through 5, the final event in his great Galilean ministry, which was 18 months long, and was towards the, it was, it would have been uh, September, October, AD 33. So this is a half a year, six months before he goes to the cross. And so here's the conversation says, but when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, that's why we know it was in uh, September, October, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Now, they were probably saying this sarcastically. He says, since you're doing all these things, show yourself to the world, big shot. I threw that in. It doesn't say big shot. It says, verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Okay, that's part of that family dynamics thing. So what changed? Because we obviously know James became a believer. And not only a believer, but he became a pillar in the church. The thing that changed was this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 15, verse 7, the apostle Paul shares this. That Jesus appeared to James after dying on the cross. So go back to those family dynamics. Thought he was out of his mind. Didn't believe in him. Saw him crucified. He knew, you know, the Romans were experts at killing people. They don't make mistakes. He's on the cross. And when they stick the spear into his side, okay, and water and blood came out, that's evidence of death. That only occurs in death. And that's why they stuck him. It's like test. And I don't mean this irreverently, testing a turkey. You know, testing your meat. You put the thermometer in and see if it's done. Okay? Essentially, that's what the Romans were doing. And so James saw this. He saw his brother die. But then he saw his brother raised from the dead. And so this falls under the, what would your brother have to do to convince you that he is the son of God and the promised Messiah? He rose from the dead. We see the same thing happen with the Apostle Paul, who was vehemently and violently opposed to Christianity and to Jesus. And on his way to Damascus, Jesus appears to him. He sees the risen Savior, and his life was radically changed, just like James's life was radically changed. 
Here's what we see about James. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes this. And this is pertaining to the Jerusalem Council. It's around 49 AD. For God, who was work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. So James is a pillar in the church by this point. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul tells us that three years after his conversion, which was around 39 AD, he went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. And he didn't see any other apostles except for James. And so James is this pillar in the church in Jerusalem. And so it's the resurrection that transformed the lives of James and Peter, as we mentioned. Over the past nine weeks, we've journeyed through the book of James. And we've seen um, this, this letter written. And, and one of the things that was the perplexing part for me is, is you read James. I, I'm very structured. Some would say OC, obsessive compulsive, and, and that's true. Um, but I like things just nice and neat and in order. So when you read James, it's like, did he just throw this stuff on the page? It seems like a, a bunch of just random information. And so I always wrestled with that. And so wrestling with it and preparing for this sermon, something came to, um, became obvious, which was this, that James's main point when he's writing to the dispersed believers, the Jewish followers of Jesus, fled Israel. And so we'll get into, well, why did they flee? But the main point that James is making is found in James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, where he says this, consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is his main point. He's saying to this group of people who fled Israel, he said, persevere. Now, they fled, they, they think about this. If you were, excuse me, if you were persecuted and you flee your home today, that would create some trials in your life, it would create some challenges in your life. And so he, he's sitting there saying, hey, it, it, consider pure joy when you have these trials in your life. And then he tells them, this is for your good. Persevere through these trials Pers because perseverance is what creates us to be mature and complete. And so before we go into that, think about this. The question is, why did they 
what persecution? What, what, what was going on? And there were two possibilities. One is the persecution of when Saul was persecuting the church. All right, Saul being the Apostle Paul. This was Paul before he became the Apostle Paul when he was violently persecuting the church. And so this is where he was a part where Stephen was stoned. And it says the church fled, that they, they took off. But it probably wasn't this because it shows that they stayed in Israel. They didn't flee from Israel. The other is this, King Herod Agrippa, who is King Herod's son, Herod the Great, who was the one that was trying to kill Jesus when he was a baby. This is his son. And the word of God uh, tells us that he put James, not James, the brother of Jesus, but put the brother of John to death. And then he also had Peter arrested. And then he was about to bring him out for trial. But before that could happen, an angel freed Peter from jail. And so Peter leaves, goes to the house of John Mark's mother and says, hey, I've been sprung and I'm out of here. Doesn't say where he went. But it was probably this persecution that caused these people who James is writing to that are now facing these trials from leaving their homes. And so another piece uh, to think of with the book of James. The book of James is an instructional book. And one of the ways uh, when you look at the, the books of the New Testament, the, the 27 books, 21 of these letters are instructional books where they're being instructed on how to follow Jesus. And so that's what James is doing here. And so um, as, as we look at our scripture from this morning, let's, we're going to see, and here's another part. As I went through the book of James, after verse 4, after he says, consider pure joy for the trials that you're going through, that this is necessary so that you would be mature and complete, not lacking anything. After that, James gives 25 instructions on how to be mature and complete, what mature and complete Christianity looks like so that they would not be incomplete as followers. And so keep that in mind as we move forward. So let's look at our, our scripture for this morning. In, in James chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. The word of God says this, is any one of you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it may not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. 
Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Before we go into detail on that, let's stop and just pray, Lord, that you would guide my speaking, that I would speak clearly and accurately, and Lord, that we would be able to hear from you and the truth of what you're speaking here. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would be honored and glorified and that you or your spirit would just speak to our hearts as we examine your word. And so as we take a closer look, we're looking at instruction number 24 and 25 that James gives. Verse 13, three responses of a mature and complete follower of Jesus. Where he says, is any one of you suffering? Another word for suffering, what he was saying here was in trouble. It means afflicted, undergoing hardship. That's what these believers who have fled are going through. Is any one of you suffering? Are you afflicted? Many here, I'm sure most of us, are inflicted in one way or another. What's the response? He should pray. Prayer is one of those underutilized resources that God has given us as followers. One of the things I struggle with, and I'm sure it's one of the things you struggle with, some more or less, depending on your personality, is we tend to be very self-sufficient. We're Americans. We can, just, we can handle things on our own. And so that's kind of our response. When things happen to us, we're like, I can handle this. Like, I can think through this. I can, you know, talk to people, whatever. But our, our first response really ought to be prayer. And if you're there, God bless you. That's awesome. That's where every one of us should be. That's why I say it's a, it's a mature response of a Christian to come to the end of themselves and realize, I need God. Even when it's simple, I need God. When it's hard, I need God. And so in everything, go to God in prayer. And then he says this, is any one of you cheerful or happy? Praise God. What is it that we do? A lot of times, you know, something good happens. We might do the happy dance. We might fist bump. We might whatever, you know. But we take for granted that the good and the bad are from God. Okay? And by the, the bad, I mean we live in a fallen world. God allows bad things to happen. The other thing about trials is this. Trials come upon us because we live in a fallen world. Okay? That's just, you know, when people say, why, did, why is the world so out of control? The chaos and all this. Why, why does God allow that? We live in a fallen world. That's one part. But here's another part to think about. 
Sometimes our trials are self-inflicted. Okay? We brought it on because of decisions that we make. Okay? But God still uses all these things for our good, his glory, and our maturity. The goal is to learn from it, not repeat it, and grow in your faith and your walk with the Lord. And so, are you suffering? Are you afflicted? Pray. Are you happy? Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. These are natural responses for a mature and complete Christian. It's like breathing. It should be like breathing. We don't even think about it. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, afflicted? Pray. Good things are going on? Praise God. The next part is this, verse 14. Is any one of you sick? The Greek word here for sick is weak and feeble. We can be weak and feeble for a lot of reasons. It doesn't, mean, doesn't necessarily mean that you've got the flu or, or something of that. Yeah, you're weak and feeble then. But you could be under incredible stress because of the trials that you're going through. You're emotionally and spiritually weak and feeble. And he says, here's the answer. He should call, they should call the elders of the church to pray over. Okay, what he's saying is call for backup. There are things, and I equate the, the, you know, a police officer, there's things that they can do by themselves. But then there's things that they need help with. They call for backup. This is one of those things. If, are you sick? Are you weak? Are you feeble? Call for backup. Call the elders. I just want to point, just a side note. You notice the word elders is plural. Okay? That's why we do multiple elders here at Oasis. We believe that the scriptures clearly teach that the church is led by elders. And so he makes that, that reference here. Okay? Uh, Verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will save the sick person, will make the sick person well. The word save means to make whole, to restore, to deliver. Now, when we look at this verse, it's kind of like the elephant in the room, okay? It's like, okay, well, you call the elders, they pray, it will make them well, Okay, does that always happen? It, it doesn't. And so what's, what are the implications? Is it that the elders didn't have enough faith? Or is it something else? Okay? And, and so this is one of those um, topics, which many, which many in, the, in the scripture, is what does the whole counsel of God say? about this topic of healing. Because it is, a, it is a, a contentious and brings tension within the church. This is one of those things that the church of Jesus Christ, it, there's disagreement on these things about healing and, and all this. And, and so some would just maybe just fluff over that and let's just move by it. But we don't want to do that. Let's, let's look. What does the whole word of God say in this area of healing. In Matthew 17, verse 19 through 20, this is where the healing of a demon-possessed individual uh, occurred. It says, then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, 
why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. In Matthew 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 20 through 22, the word of God says this. When the disciples saw this, referring to the fig tree they had withered, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, he asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. James also mentions this, hits this topic in chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, where the word of God says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives graciously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. But he who asks must not doubt Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all he does. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 through 23, the Apostle Paul writes, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church of God, God has appointed... First of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, and those having the gift of healing, those able to help others, those with the gift of administration, those who speak in different kind of tongues. And then the word says this, are all apostles, apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, Do all have the gift of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. They're gifts that are bestowed on individuals in the church. Not everybody has those gifts. And then in John, the Apostle John writes this, 1 John 5, verse 14 through 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have what we ask of him. Did you catch that? According to his will. A lot of people have a genie in a bottle mentality. I just rub the genie, the bottle, ask Jesus for three wishes, and it's granted. It doesn't work that way. It's according to his will. And so one of the reasons why it is vital for every believer to know the word of God is that we can pray and live according to his will. So as as we look at this, as I wrestled with this, one of the uh, commentators that I use uh, for a couple reasons. One, it was a part of my Bible program that I have, and so it was, I paid for it. 
Uh, the other is that it's actually really good. He's really good. Albert Barnes. Any of you ever hear of Albert Barnes? Crickets? Okay. He lived in the 1800s. And, and he, he was uh, a, a pastor back in those days. And, and he writes this. It says, verse 15 here, must be understood as such a promises are elsewhere with this restriction that they will be restored to health if it shall be the, wor- the will of God. If he deems it for the best, it cannot be taken in the absolute unconditional sense for... Then, if these means were used, the sick person would always recover, no matter how often he might be sick, and never die. Think about it. You know? And so, again, you can't sit there and look at one piece of scripture and say, okay, call in the elders, anoint them with oil, and they will be healed. It doesn't work that way. I mean, we currently have... That situation going on in our own church. We have it going on. You probably have it going on. But one of the the biggest, our dear sister Diane and our brother Dale. Dale has been asleep for months. And and we've we've gone and we've prayed and we, we anointed him with oil. And he still sleeps. And one of the things that's been incredibly encouraging is, is Diane's faith. And how she's walking through this and trusting God and saying, God, we don't understand what's going on here. We have no idea. But that falls into his ways are higher than our ways. And that he's infinite, he's good, he's holy, he's just, we're not. We, we don't know what's going on. You probably have things going on as well. In, in James's counsel, and this scripture is, trust God with our trials. That he's using them to mature us, that we would be complete. Without these trials, it's part of the process of becoming mature and complete. And, and so, you know, with Dale, we're just like, we continue to pray and continue to trust God with that. And so, you know, and then the next part of the verse is this. And if he, if, if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven. This is another thing. You got to balance scripture with scripture. Okay, so this person's been prayed for, has been, has recovered. Their sins have been forgiven. Well, our sins are forgiven because we have placed our faith in Christ. So he is writing to believers. We need to understand that. They place their faith in Christ. Their sins have been forgiven. But even the sins that they commit afterwards, the Bible says, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Plus, when he died on the cross, our sins past, present, and future are forgiven. But we need to acknowledge our sins as well. But there's also an implication here. Was the sickness dealing with sin? Remember what I said about being self-inflicted earlier? That our trials and consequences can be self-inflicted? 
Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28 through 31, the Apostle Paul uh, touches on this, where he says this, a man, ought to, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Talking about communion. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That word fallen asleep is they've died. And so there is sin as followers of Jesus. There are sins that can bring death. And we don't have to go through and listen. You can think of yourself. If we do anything that's opposed to what God has for us, it could lead to our premature death. We, we see it frequently. And so here's this next piece of advice, the application in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed, that you would be made whole physically and spiritually. Since the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working, okay? Part of this being mature and complete as followers of Jesus is this confessing our sins, this accountability in intercession. These are God's... Um, God's solution for restoration. As believers, we blow it, okay? But there is forgiveness, and the solution, repent, turn from it, confess your sins, confide. We should all have accountability in our lives. That's kind of what we're shooting for with journey groups and life groups and, and, and just having a mentor, whatever it may be. That accountability where someone can call us out when they see us going astray. And so, when we get into verse 19, that's what that's dealing with. But in verse 17 and 18, James just gives us an example. He says, Elijah, a person just like you and I, prayed and for three days, or, or prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Okay, a man of faith. But that wandering thing, verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back. Now, when somebody wanders, and I'm sure all of us, either we were the wanderer, or we know somebody who's wandered from the faith. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says this. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Okay? And so that's one of the privileges we have as believers. Is when we see a brother or sister wandering from the faith, making bad decisions, we need to come to them and encourage them and confront them about their sin, about their wandering. And so he says, and if you bring them back, verse 20, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save 
him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now he's talking to believers. Therefore, the death, death means separation. And so it's either separation from God, which it's not speaking of because he's speaking to believers. He's talking of save them from death, that premature death that we were talking about. It's if you keep going down this road, you're probably going to kill yourself. And so you'll save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins, that their sins would be forgiven. And guess what? If they turn back, they will not continue to walk in sin that continues to bring uh, these problems on with each other. And so, um, and here's another thing, James addressed this in chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, where he said, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desires, you catch that? By our own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So, it starts with with the eyes, the ears, goes into the mind. We think on it, we act on it, and when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. And so, I I don't know where you are this morning, where this hits you this morning. You know, again, the main point is perseverance. Whatever you're going through, persevere. Because perseverance must finish its work so that you would be mature and complete and not lack anything. Persevere. You're going through these trials that are going on. Examine yourself. Ask yourself, is this trial that I'm going through self-inflicted? If it is, repent. Turn from it. Turn back to God, confess your sins, and follow him his way. The area of prayer. Again, are are you you self-sufficient? Are you handling this yourself? You're pulling up your boots. I can handle this. God didn't create us to handle it. He created us to trust him and to go to him in prayer, in faith. Maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what? I can't even say that I'm a follower of Jesus. And the good news is this, is that Jesus died for you. Died for your sins so that you don't have to be separated from him. And by faith, by believing that Jesus died for you, trusting and committing your life to him, you're turning from your sins and you're turning to Jesus as the sole redeemer, the only way that you're going to be reconciled to God. Then make that step today. You're going, I've gone through a lot of trials. Those are self-inflicted. Okay, If you walk and you live in sin, you're going to still reap the consequences of that sin. Turn and follow Jesus. Accept Jesus 
as your Lord and Savior. And so as we get ready for communion, think on these things. Where are you? Where does this message hit you? And wherever it is, there's a solution. And the solution is Jesus. As we, as we uh, get ready, we'll have the uh, uh, worship team come up, lead us, and, and prepare us as we come and take communion. And uh, as they're coming, let me just pray for, you, pray for us real quick. Lord, I praise you and thank you for the gift that you've given us of salvation, forgiveness, and instruction on how to follow you. Lord, I just pray that we would hear from you, that we, as we heard from you, that we would take whatever step of obedience you're calling to us, whether it's for salvation, repentance, turning from our sin, placing or just persevering and trusting you in our trials.